welcome to Straight Talk Live. My name is Rick Snyder, one of the co-hosts of this fantastic show, our last show of the year. And yes, we are going to kick back up after the holidays. Um, but just want to thank you all for tuning in this year. It's been an amazing uh, launch of this podcast, which really started around COVID. And uh, my co-host Af and I not being satisfied by the conversations that we were hearing in the mainstream and in the media and how unprepared we all are around human, digital, and social transformation. And just that that's what really was the impetus of this show. And so I just want to especially thank each of you who've been along the ride with us, uh, who've also shared that interest in knowing that these conversations are sparking other conversations in your lives, um, whether it's around the unemployment crisis or education or uh, sustainability and climate or how to find the courage to be an outlier in the corporate world like we're going to get into today. Uh, but first, I, uh, I want to introduce my co-pilot, Af Maholtra. Af, take it away. Thank you very much, sir. Welcome, everyone, to yet another fantastic episode of uh, Straight Talk Live. I'm, of course, the co-host and also the co-founder of Growth Enabler. And uh, I'm extremely excited about today in particular because this individual who we're going to introduce in a minute, um, she's, a, she's one of those... Um, executives and people that um i don't know how how do, how do i put this it's the first time i met rick it, fe it felt like i've known him for ages he called it the soul connection and i feel after i met lisa just a few months ago in fact we've had a few very powerful conversations she's got such an incredible energy um, you know very very sort of um a compelling experience in the executive world that i'm sure she'll tell you about and what drew my attention to, to the topic today was how I was just inspired by the fact that she had the courage, she has the courage, and she just turned up, turned up the dial, I guess, to step out of the corporate for a period of time and has um, transformed her mindset and her thinking to the extent that she's gone back into the corporate. So she's, she's ready to go back into battle again and is now creating change at an unprecedented rate. And uh, hats off to you. I didn't have the courage to go back into the corporate. Uh, so that was um, inspirational for me. So Rick, over to you to do the formal intro and then let's crack on. Okay. So uh, Lisa, first of all, welcome to Straight Talk Live. And uh, Lisa is, yeah, excited to have you here. And Lisa is the Chief Strategic Financial Officer at Farmers Insurance. And Lisa, for those in our audience who may not have been exposed to you yet, which they will after this show for sure, um, can you uh, let them know a little bit about your background? Uh, that would be helpful. Yeah, no, thank you. And thank you for having me. It's just going to be such a treat to, to have this conversation with the two of you. I'm very excited. So yeah, I always um, like to less about my background and my corporate and I'll, I'll, I'll touch on my experience in a moment, but I would say I'm defined actually by my, um, by the kind of oddity of my parents' background. So my mom was a dancer owned her own business um, and ran a dance studio for 35 years, but she was a prima ballerina back in her days. And so I grew up a dancer with a dancer's mindset, which we'll get to on many levels. Um, I never really understood how that affected me in my corporate life. My dad's an engineer. And um, I, I would say that when, when I think about my background, I went to liberal arts um, undergrad. I, I was originally a chemistry major, switched into business and economics, was minoring in econ and passionate about economically what fuels and what drives and the whys behind everything. And Af and I can talk about, I just have this passion for how we 
ROI things, but in the maybe wrong ways to drive transformation and, and disruption, mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ended up just cutting my teeth in public accounting. So I, I kind of like a decade, a, a decade and now about a half. So about a decade doing very traditional finance, finance transformation, public accounting, consulting, auditing, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like you name it in, in that spectrum. And then about a decade rotating, rotating through different corporate cultures is what mm-hmm. I would describe. Um, a, a real sense of kind of um, magnetically drawn to adrenaline and change before we were using words like transformation and digital, right? Mm-hmm. Like I would call it, I thought it was just like easily bored maybe. <laughs> so I did a kind of a rotation through Home Depot, ING Voya, which is, um, uh, I, I did a stent at um, a, a couple small boutique like insurance companies. And then I, I spent a decade at actually Munich Re, which, which we can talk about a German based reinsurance company. And then that, that five years that I kind of carve off on the side, that kind of half, half a decade, I spent really applying all that acumen of ops, of finance, of systems, of strategy, of relentless pursuit of different, of bucking the status quo into what I would call is transformation, strategy, innovation. But mm-hmm. how do you actually feel that to put points on the board? So that's just a little bit about me. I met farmers now um, driving their um finances, but also the transformation of our business. Let me ask you about that to start with. So I haven't heard as often chief strategic financial officer. And can you help me clarify how is that different than a chief financial officer? Because usually my experience as a CFO is is a strategic position where they're really looking at a higher level of guiding, you know, forecasting, guiding where things are moving toward new market trends. How is your role, would you say different than a typical CFO? Yeah. So, so, I mean, it, it, it's a little hard because my, my upbringing and my, just I kind of like what you think you want to be when you grow up was like, Oh, like you want to be a partner in public accounting or the CFO. And quite early on in my career, I was like, well, I don't want to be either of those things. Cause back in those days, that wasn't what I aspired to be because it was really, you know, in essence, yes, the strategy, yes, the forecasting, yes, sitting at the right hand of the CEO, but it was about the numbers, not about, the compelling, uh, like, how do we reinvent our business? Those discussions were like happening. And then it was like, how do I pay for it? Well, no, like, <laughs> why, why am I not helping you reinvent it? Right. And so, so in a lot of discussions now, we talk modernization and finance modernization. I actually say like, why do we even label the vertical? Why don't we lateralize it and say transformation? and strategy, because we all at this C-suite level should be stewards of our total comprehensive business model. And and, and I, and I guess, Rick, it may be because also, so what's different is I spent so like the last five years of my career working for the global CIO, working for the enterprise architect, being the COO, retiring all mainframe systems, going totally to the cloud. I call it like like immersion in the trenches of technology, but to apply it to everything and connecting all that way to ops and finance. And and so the strategy CFO, the strategic CFO role is one where we say, we don't get a get out card. We don't get a, we just have to modernize or be strategic with our function. Mm -hmm. I'm coming to the table saying, how are we going to actually modernize our industry, Mm -hmm. our business model? What are Mm -hmm. we going to do that is, an outlier, even against our competitors, because mm-hmm. by the way, I don't think competitors are the disruptor. I think mm-hmm. the disruptor is the consumer. So mm-hmm. what is it that the consumer can envision and how do we get there? 
my my I'll say my my economic value proposition to my company is how do I enhance that value? And yes, by the way, how do I help fund it? Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> with you um lisa you still there i think your screen's frozen are you back is it on my end no it looks like she froze for a moment i think she's back though yep she's there yep cool excellent um i i want to get right into it um and go 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 into the title of this session and the conversations we've had in the past and i think um for a lot of the listeners and folks who are going to join this session now or on the replay we want to talk about um leaders and courage and the courage to do things that they they should be doing but um, haven't quite managed to and we're trying to work out what stops a leader from enacting so when you talk about your career you talk about all the jobs you've done and the diversity of experience and then you talk about and by the way i must say it because uh, this is straight talk live we don't see many women cfos um of course and we certainly don't see um many um we don't see the diversity of thought at a CFO level. And we, of, we often don't think of the CFO as the individual who's going to be this transformational, easy to get along with person. We, all, the, we typecast them, right or wrong, as the numbers people and say, well, don't bother going to the CFO because all he or she cares about is saving money and not giving you any money. And, and I think when you're, you know, and when you're changing things, and you're, I think you're referring to what we call systems thinking, Right, where you're a systems thinker, you're you're in technology, you're in the operations, you're in the finance, you're in the strategy, and so on and so forth. So, first, tell us as part of your personal experience, this is your journey. Um, what is it? What did what did it take you to find the courage to do what you're doing today? Why did you just keep skipping company to company? Why did you bother going out from finance to do the immersion in technology? Well, why? Why? What, we're trying to understand the DNA. Um, and yeah. I think we'll circle back then. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so let's, let's really uh, peel back that onion, right? Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I would say that when I was in my early 30s, I actually went to an executive coach and I said, like, what's wrong with me? So I, I would say, like, the first thing about courage is, like, you have to kind of, like, acknowledge, like, you have to, first of all, see it. And secondly, I, I, I won't say that it was actually... It, it was part of my DNA that I had to learn why was I differentiated. And we'll get to like an outlier on the inside because there, there's actually a sense of isolation that's created mm-hmm. with people who think like this pattern recognizers, mm-hmm. catalysts, yeah. um, immersion, because it comes this kind of like, why are you my turf, et cetera. So we could talk about the courage about that because that's like kind of like on a whole different um, plane and different level. But I would say that the first thing is, um, I think we are often educated, or at least I was for sure, about curiosity and the why. Mm-hmm. And, and we could talk about the why in the digital world. And that's really, in my mind, what's lacking true harnessing of economic output and value in our digital world so far. It's, we can do a lot, but we don't know how to apply. Yeah. What's the why? What's the big question we're trying to answer? So if, if I step back, the courage in all this is understanding and leaning into curiosity and curiosity beside over and above your job duty, your job title and the descriptive roles, right? We in society, you know, you know this better than I do even, we've created 
all organizations, not even insurance, this is one area where insurance is not actually the outlier. All mm. organizations were created by a, like an industrial revolution business model. And we created stability and governance and hyper verticalization, right? So I, I think the first thing when you're entering into these things and you're a naturally curious person and you're trained, you know, I was trained in liberal arts, right? Like it's less about what you know than it is like how to think. Right. Thinking mm-hmm. is the golden <laughs> And I would say the courage to think, which sounds literally absurd to say, yeah. is what has been my linchpin or my 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 golden rule. If anyone is telling you not to think and anyone is shutting down your curiosity, mm-hmm. that is fundamentally a red flag. Mm-hmm. Curiosity itself should be not stifled it should not be diluted curiosity Mm. is how we better ourselves and and i I think a lot of the frameworks which is interesting that you meant like systems thinking and all these things right and 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 you're gonna think it's funny i'm I'm actually a little bit of an anti-framework person because what Mm. frameworks have enabled most people to do is stifle individuality curiosity and it's this excuse of i'm following xyz methodology or I'm following this roadmap, or I'm following mm-hmm. this. And so so I, I would say like, okay, so first of all, it's like, do you have the DNA? And I think, you know, honestly, Rick and I, I, I just had the DNA for it. I, I don't think it was special. I think maybe the difference was I couldn't, I couldn't stifle or I, I couldn't, um, you know, I couldn't like put that on simmer. That DNA was so strong in me that I had to, and then I'd say the courage became when I started hitting all these walls, which you naturally hit, right? Yeah. Because I'm blindly walking in and I don't have this genetic marker and DNA that most people have, which is stay in your lane, play the game, mm-hmm. don't ask the questions that lead to discovery, blah, blah, blah. That's when I had to learn how do you be like, how do you architect your curiosity, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that's a totally different game, especially being a woman. Mm-hmm. And especially being a woman growing up in the like the industry and the verticals that I grew up in, right? So Lisa, this is important. Let's double click on that right there because I know how many people um, have great thoughts and, and sometimes try to speak it and then it just falls on deaf ears or they don't want to hear it or there's the whole politics, especially in the corporate space. And we all, I think we've all had that experience in some way, shape or form yeah. uh, where there's not a place to land or there's not even a curiosity on the other side to listen. Right. Mm-hmm. And so here's my question for you is how, what have you learned on how to tell your story in a way that people can hear? How have you learned when you have met resistance or there wasn't an opening and you just had this intuition that you had to speak that thought that was bubbling up in you? Mm-hmm. How did you, what are some tips and practices or tools or, of the trade that you could give our audience on what do you do when you're getting met with that resistance and you want to be like water, as Bruce Lee would say, and finding your way around the, the wall. How, how have you, what are some ways that you've done that or examples? Yeah, so a, a lot comes to mind when you ask that question. And so I'm going to answer it in kind of a couple of different dimensions, because I think it depends on maybe who you are in the audience as to how this would relate to you. So I, I'd say, first of all, I'm connecting back to courage. If you're someone that is, and by the way, my daughter's an introvert. So if you're introverted or you are somebody who doesn't necessarily have the courage to have that voice to walk in and say, 
it doesn't matter. I'm doubling down on this because it's fiduciarily the right thing to do. Some people are literally just wired that way. Okay. And if you're not wired that way, first of all, I want to, I want you to understand that is a thousand percent acceptable. You don't have to become something you're not. In fact, that's the mm -hmm. whole problem mm -hmm. with corporate structures, okay? And the way we kind of condition people. So if you're not that person, the first advice I would give you, Rick, is you need to find that person. Mm -hmm. And I call it amplifying the voice. Mm -hmm. So if, if, if you have something that's curious, you're not being heard or you want to be heard, and you're not naturally someone who's like Khaleesi mother of dragons, I'm going to break mm -hmm. chains, right? Find the chain breaker and align with them because a chain breaker is always going to be receptive to hearing points of dissent, points of concern, because A, they're naturally curious. So they have less, I'll call it cognitive bias than someone who is less like that. Um, I would say if you were on the, um, maybe a little bit more on the chain, chain breaker side, and I'm just making these acronyms up because I'm trying not to tie into any specific management framework. If you're on the chain breaker side, I would say, um, yeah, be careful and uh, cognizant of how you create your visual maps. And somebody said this advice to me, and it's probably one of the best nuggets of mm -hmm. advice I ever received. Talk outcomes, not ideas. Hmm. Most people who are naturally curious are ideation people and we can be, and we think out loud That's good. and we move hyperly and I learned this in this catalyst session I was in, we move hyperly like rapid pace, like, you know, quantum from ideation to manifestation. And most people that we're talking to, if you're this type of person, it takes them time to even understand like what technicolor is when they're in a black and white world, right? I mean, mm -hmm. Visual mapping, breadcrumbing, bringing people along. But I would say that you've got to really have an understanding of who you're trying to convince, mm -hmm. compel. And, and we think of things like, like relationship blueprinting, understanding people's motivation, et cetera. We mm -hmm. are all motivated by the commitments we are accountable for. So mm. outcomes, not ideas. Hmm. Some of the ideation needs to happen, I'll call it a little bit behind the scenes because not everyone can actually digest what you have to offer. So, so those are kind of like on two high level spectrums. I think there's a lot of, um, I'll call it tips, tools and tricks in between. Mm -hmm. um, but, but those would be my kind of at least initial two, two lenses on that question. Mm. That's powerful. I like it. I, I can relate to that a lot. I mean, I think um, I think the other parts of this um, are really nicely put. The, the piece of curiosity. I just wanted to say one more thing, actually, because you said conditioning. Be careful of conditioning. But I think I do. I would side with the with the thought that or the statement that you can you should condition people to be curious, because I think um, when you have little children, and one of the things I'm discovering is my kids are very curious. They're born curious. Mm -hmm. They're born to imagine. They're born with fantasies, right? They've got their own AR, VR world. And as you grow up, you stifle that, you suck it out of them and you become frameworkized or you know, systemized, uh, if you want to put it that way. So I do think that there is, you know, there's an opportunity for executives to understand that we have, we do have to condition, but condition people to think out of the box and be curious. And I think a lot of companies don't allow you to be curious because you have to stay in your lane, as you put it right? Stay, stay, stay the course, because of course, we're silos and we've got to deliver on finance or deliver on sales or deliver on product. How dare you jump into another lane? 
And that brings me to the question of culture. So, so it seems like you've jumped around a lot. So you've gone from big company, small company, super big company, uh, and your roles augmented to a large degree. Um, how did you deal with different cultures? Um, tell us about failures, if you wouldn't mind as well, if that's okay. Not just the successes, because of course you're super successful, but you can only be successful by screwing up a lot. Um, uh, you don't learn anything from successes, as in we don't learn anything from successes. So talk to us about an, a situation where it all sort of fell apart without naming names, because there are people who are thinking, well, oh my God, it seems like everything's perfect for Lisa. Like she just did this and she's curious and she just moves up the ladder and gets a new job. There's got to be some screw up there as well. T talk us through the pain point. Yeah, the proverbial, uh, let's just start by saying the higher up the ladder you go, you miss one step and you fall down really bad. <laughs> Yeah. As, a, as a child, so I'll tell you the story. I, I actually hate heights and I hate, I, I literally hate slides because I guess this is kind of a, a visual kind of anecdote to my life. I was like 18 months old. I walked early, all this stuff, climbed up this huge slide, got to the top and realized I was scared to actually go down the slide. Like, I guess my fear of heights kicked in. And my mom tells the story as I looked back at her. She was sitting on a bench back when parents took their kids to the park, you know, yeah. <laughs> And, before, and um, I looked back, I missed a step and I fell straight to the bottom, not down the slide part. So I was afraid of sliding down and I went down clearly the, the, the climbing part and I, you know, scraped my chin, my nose, you know, the whole thing. And I often think of that. Um, I don't know why that story just resonates with me in my um, professional career, because we have this, um, this view of it's so easy at the top. I want to talk about isolation and I also want to talk about inclusion as well as, as mm. in, this, in this kind of thought process. But we often have this view that we look at people and we think, well, they've made it to this level or they're so confident or, you know, they're so courageous or, or they had a, you know, a DNA that I didn't have and that's why mm. I didn't get there. Or it's, I don't want to say it's like so easy for them, right? But I think along the way, I, I can literally tell you at every level that I got to, every new level of um, promotion or progression or whatever, I had that slide moment where I got there. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm afraid of height. Like, I, I'm afraid of this. Like, yes, I earned it. I deserved it. I worked for it. I, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then you look down and you're like, now I'm actually afraid of heights. What, what am I doing? And mm. you take, and, you, and if you look back, you, you, you skip the step. So if you skip the step when you climb back down, you fall and you fall faster and harder, right? Because it's combined with this sense of isolation. So, I mean, like specific anecdotes here are you underestimate the political environment. You underestimate people. Mm -hmm. I call it you're, you're sniped. You literally underestimate, you're doing all the right things and you think you're including all the right people and you're doing the relationship blueprinting and you're winning engagement and collaboration and all this, that, and the other. You're doing all the things you're trained as a leader to do. And you don't realize that there's a sniper, i.e. somebody in your organization that's got up on some rooftop somewhere that's gunning for you because you don't even see it coming, right? Mm -hmm. And and I, I think that that definitely happens. And and this gets back to your question on courage. The perspective is most people, I, I would say not are paranoid, but most leaders get a sense of that very quickly. And so the question becomes, are you someone who says, I just know there's snipers out there. I'm going to put on a bulletproof vest or I'm going to run or I'm going to have like a strategy of, you know, like if you play laser tag, where am I going to go for cover? 
Or mm. are you going to literally just walk out and say, go for it because I'm going to get to the finish line before you can get me. Mm-hmm. Or are you going to say, well, I've got to get in a position of safety and that position of safety, whether it's, you know, emotional safety and political safety is what I'm talking mm. about here. Is mm. that position of safety going to put more points on the board fiduciarily for my company and the mission, which gets mm. to purpose. Mm. Are you mission purpose driven or, you know, or are you like trying to like, are you safety driven? What's your like values? Mm-hmm. And like when I do those value surveys or, you know, like whatever, all those different things, I score very high on strategy, fiduciary and purpose and uniqueness. So when I take those kind of simulations, right, that would always like you come down to like a couple of principles that say, this is what I go to the mat on. These are yeah. things that matter to me. Mine is always the combination of those, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a combination of meaning my, in essence, I'll be a, an accountant, accountant. My cost benefit analysis in those situations is always coming back to uniqueness, fiduciary duty, driving the company forward over and above, if you will, that position of maybe political safety. Does that make sense? But mm-hmm. you've got to be safe enough that you can actually achieve something to put points on the board. Yeah. So quick question. When you go to CFO's events, LOs of ECF events, tell me what happens there. Because <laughs> I'd, I'd love to be... A fly on the wall. Fly on the well, wall. <laughs> the best CFO event I ever went to was actually at the New York Stock Exchange. And we were having dinner. Um, so we had cocktails on the New York Stock Exchange right. floor, which was pretty cool. Because I'm thinking... That's this cool. Is like, this, like all the trades that have occurred now, now it's like antiquated and relic. They don't really do trades there per se anymore. Right. But, right. but we got to meet the head of the New York Stock And then we went and had um, a dinner on the, in the boardroom of the New York Stock Exchange. And I was sitting, I was just lucky the table I was sitting at, like the CFO of Facebook was there. And, you know, we were, I was giving him a hard time about nobody using Facebook directly anymore for like, you know, like, and then he's like, Oh, we've got Instagram now. And we were kind of just, jeering with each other but i would say that most discussions are predominantly about you know i'll call it fiscal responsibility modernizing the back end um leading into how can we become the right hand of the ceo but Mm -hmm. i'll tell you a little um i don't know how many people know this i think almost all cfos really have a desire to lead and be ceos I think many of them, I kind of wonder if it's, I think many of them could lean into running a business. Maybe they just don't think that they they would be. And, and I know there's, there's actually a great example of that. Um, a woman I work for two lines down at Home Depot, Carol Tomei, is now mm-hmm. the CEO at UPS. So I've always thought CFOs want to become mm-hmm. CEOs because we do have a business mind. Yeah. Not, you know, mm-hmm. And we, we do understand you understand a lot about how to run a business when you know the numbers inside out, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Did that answer your question? Yeah, no, it, it did. And I asked the question, um, it was deliberate because of course you're, you're an outlier, um, especially as a CFO. I, you know, it always intrigues me as to um, what would the CFO generally have a conversation about and which you've just confirmed and how do you fit into the, into the pit, into the puzzle? Cause I still, I still feel you're an outlier. Um, I had, Rick wanted to ask you a question, but I had another one around safety, but, but Rick, you go first. Yeah. Um, so I want to come back to culture and that's something that we really hit hard last mm-hmm. time with Jonathan Raymond from refound talking about the core of a culture is people development, not just shareholder value. 
and and that we're really seeing that shift and we're all all of us agreed that we're feeling that shift in the corporate space that what has been the holy grail of the past which is still true of having fiduciary responsibility for shareholders and all those things but there's this growing um sense of meaning and purpose where employees want to feel engaged they want to feel that their creativity and curiosity is honored and there's a place for them their voice to be heard uh, or they're going to a different company right and so we're seeing this cultural shift happen even within executive teams that i work with and coach um, I'm seeing a whole range of those that are more risk takers and those that are more entrenched in the traditional ways of how we do business. So from a strategic perspective, how do you create a space in the cultures you work in or the executive teams you work as part of or with? How do you create a strategic space that really does help them open to new ideas and innovation versus doubling down on what's familiar because it's familiar? How do you work with that on an executive team, for example? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a great question. And I would say just, so, so um, it's funny because I think everyone uses the word culture and change management and, you know, it all takes time and mm -hmm. we start by behaviors and then we ripple this down and, you know, you know, we've all heard it before. We've all done it before. We've mm -hmm. all, you know, engaged in this before. And, and I tend to be a very, um, I'll say patience is probably not my strong suit. So like, I hear all these things. I'm like, yeah, but like, I got to get some, like, I, I've got to deliver. The consumer is no longer patient. So how do I do all this and deliver to the consumer? Your purpose is to compel and invigorate and ignite the consumer, right? Like whatever you're doing, you know, it, it might be for, you know, in our case, it's to, like to protect their lives and to add, you know, like what, whatever it is, right? Um, Amazon is delighting you, hopefully, right? Hopefully around Christmas, they're getting the shipping back on track. But anyway, that all being said, um, you know, when I think about this, I, I heard a, a great analogy to this recently, and it's, it's the concept of the human anatomy in our brains and how we're really wired, right? So there, there's two vortexes that I would say we, we all operate in, Rick. And, and, and the problem is, I would say our corporate culture, our C-suite, these executive realms, mm -hmm. we far too often hit on survival. And that is a problem. That is mm -hmm. the number one reason why these mm -hmm. initiatives we pursue fail. And, and people blame it on culture, on time, on change management, et cetera. But if you kind of step back, it's that humans have been conditioned for centuries, right? Like <laughs> to understand if threatened, our survival mode kicks in mm -hmm. and it creates all of the things that we see permeating it's it's uh you know fight or flight it creates stress it creates anxiety it creates lack of engagement it creates low morale it creates um lack of inclusion you know you know all these things it, and it very much creates you know almost like that example i was giving with a sniper it creates a sense of i need emotional and physical and political safety Therefore, I'm going to go under the radar, right? Because we as humans can actually, no matter how hard we try, we cannot counteract that instinct of if we're threatened, we go into survival mode, which is the result of this, which is what we see when we try to do large scale hyper, you know, or even I'll call it, you know, limited transformation. Mm -hmm. However, on the very next side of that, 
there's this wonderful thing that I think maybe has been what's given me the courage. I don't know. And it's called um, thriving. And survival and thriving are just like almost like incrementally separated in our brain. Mm -hmm. And thriving creates the, if you think about it like this, your body, your brain, and your engagement can sustain when you're thriving at marathon levels of hyper change. Mm-hmm. It creates it and it's rooted in curiosity. Mm-hmm. It creates this circle, this pattern of almost like a natural electrolyte engagement. Sorry, engagement and invigoration and, you, and, and, and and yeah, you're changing, but you're not activating that stressor. So you're mm-hmm. not stressed. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 it's adrenaline, but in a non-stressful way. So you can sustain that and continue to sustain that. And it creates um, reward. It creates constant engagement. It creates invigoration and it's self-fueling, mm-hmm. meaning you don't have to, like, you don't have to continually feed it mm-hmm. because it is being fed continually by curiosity, by the engagement. And so it's a natural receptor in your, actually in your chemical makeup that mm-hmm. creates this pattern of continual engagement, feeling of inclusion. And, and therefore you actually, it's not change. It doesn't throw you into this survival fight or flight mode. Mm-hmm. It really puts you into this almost like leaning into it. And then you almost crave it. It's almost like insatiable, like, mm-hmm. like me on sugar, but it's like, you know, I, I can't get enough of it. Right. It's, mm-hmm. it's all the good things for your body. And, and, and I think that when, when I think of like the leadership teams that I've been, um, you know, fortunate enough to be part of over the years, when it worked, and by the way, it didn't always work. A lot of times it's survival, it's politics, you know, it's all the things that you think of. So I don't want you to think like, where's Stuart? Let me go sign up. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it, the one, but the, the, if I say the times where I was most, I would feel like included or enabled, or you might use the word empowered, or that's the best time of my life. I love that boss. I want to recreate that team, right? Mm-hmm. That team was operating in that thriving mode. Hmm. Is that is that was that before you, after you, during, because that there's an element of the longevity of that. So do you inherit a thriving team or do you go build one from scratch, or both? I guess. I'd say that I personally have never inherited a team that's <clears throat> operating in that thriving mode, um, likely because of the conditions put forth. But there's I'll call it an awakening of the thrival in that that thriving instinct and capacity and understanding how to awaken it and how to create it. And, and then the, the kind of one other thing I want to draw a correlation to. So I've created, I've hopefully created that mm. <laughs> more times than I haven't. You never know. You can ask the people that work for me. You know, mm. the, the objective is to create that both at the leadership level and in all the teams, right? That's not just something that persists at the leadership level. Every team should have that thrival. Like, what are we doing to thrive? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess the, the other thing I wanted to kind of it kind of connects back to your question about the, you know, how you go up the ladder, this yeah. this tier on culture um, and a great colleague of mine uh, who leads a lot of strategy and development at Oracle. She was leading this session and she was talking about um, isolation and the feeling of inclusion. And the one thing that I think a lot of maybe catalyst, innovation, strategy, transformation, like whatever you label it, right? What a lot of us outliers, our job is to actually create inclusion or this mm-hmm. feeling of thrival. Mm-hmm. Yet we ourselves 
don't, we're, we're creating so much of it. It's almost like being a parent, you're giving so much, but yet we ourselves feel like an outlier in our own environment. So that feeling of inclusion is, and hopefully we're creating it, maybe not always, but hopefully the majority of the times we are able to create that at least in pods or groups, mm. but how do you create inclusion at, at that higher level, which you'll hear a lot of executives talk about feelings of isolation, mm. like who do I talk to now, who relates to me now, and it, again, it's coming back to this thriving concept, like how mm. do I thrive, and what do I really do at that level, and so I don't know if that answered your question, but... Mm. I mean, I, I, I want to just follow um, on another point. So when you talk about thriving, you talk about the two vortexes. It's a good, it's a good way of framing it, I guess. Um, th this, the current situation with the world is that you have these three kind of categories of companies. I think you and I have talked about this that I refer to as dwindlers, Darwins, or disruptors. I think of it as, it as a pyramid, right? There are loads of dwindlers who are dying out and whether it's pandemic or whatever the reason may be, they're not going to be around in five to 10 years. And then the, the Darwins who wake up and smell the coffee and they want to change and then and the disruptors and we know who they are. Now, if you think of if you think of leadership and you think about um, why things just don't change, you know, it could be politics, inertia, a lot of the factors, lack of accountability. But one thing you touched on, which uh, is is very important, is this concept of sort of fear and safety. And even if you, you know, how many times have we seen an, a, a leader go into an organization fresh and ready, first hundred days, come on, I'm going to make this happen. And then, you know, a year later, that person is like resigned to the fact that, you know, I'm not going to make any change happen, but I get paid a good salary, may as well just shut up and, and put up with it. And they go into the safety mode, but they're still aspirational. They still deep down if they detach themselves from their sort of financial commitments and i've got to pay for high school for my kids and just you know the the, the partner or the husband or wife saying just just keep quiet will you just carry on and just keep the job will you this time and i think with a lot of outliers maybe i'm speaking for myself but you know what i'm where i'm going with this a lot of us outliers we break things a lot and we cannot tolerate status quo we just cannot we're not being difficult and uh, what's happening in big organizations today is that we're trying to move people away from safety or getting worried about getting fired to this new culture. Every time you listen to an earnings call of a big company, including the ones you've been part of, the CEO says, right, we're a digital company, right? Everyone's digital, digital talent, digital this, digital that, diversity and inclusion, ESG and, and the whole, you know, whole shebang. So... If you had a um, Harry Potter moment, and Harry Potter is Harry Potter moments are. Um, I refer that back to one of our other guest speakers, Martin Ectors. He 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 calls it the uh, sort of uh, Harry Potter problems, but I'm giving you the Harry Potter moment, the wand. What is it that we really need? Cut all the bullshit out. What do we really need to do seriously to get a big company and leadership to say, to think the way you're thinking, to say the things you're saying, and execute the way you believe we should be executing? What 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 should we do? Yeah, that's it. Like if I, if I had my wand and I, and I had the spell, Hermione, <laughs> I knew, yeah. knew all the spells in the spell book. Yeah. That, I think that, okay, so, so let, let me start with the kind of problems because I like to recognize patterns and then figure out how to play chess in a different way, right? Mm -hmm. So no matter how purposeful we want to be, we, we have to demonstrate to the street our economic value, right? Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, we have these huge governance, functional, matrix, vertical organizations. 
And with that comes decision making and decision making, et cetera. And, you know, even in innovation, and I'll, I'll have to say this before I, before I move on, one of the disservices, I think, that a lot of people in transformation and innovation, I, I would like to call it like innovation theater, have done as yeah. a disservice, and maybe we should call this like Voldemort in the Harry Potter world, is we've gone into transformation and we've done, you know, I'll call it like, we've taken analog processes to www.com. And that wasn't really moving the needle. So, 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 so that's a disservice in the sense of it was a play on economic efficacy or efficiency, or it it got some points on the board, low hanging fruit, you know, you know, whatever. I love it. People say focus, focus. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Got to focus. But you know, I I did something rudimentary, so let's focus on it. Um, But so if I had to wave my magic wand, it is, creating inertia and a sense of continual unrest by the leaders that there is no safety, right? Like the safety is not feeling safe, right? The safety is we continually have to move. And and clearly we we all talk about these things like there's safety in failing. We're going to be experimental, fail, fail fast, fail quickly, get up, right? But I, I think if you really study large companies that actually do do this well, they actually say, if you're not failing X times a year, then you're, you're literally not being curious. You're literally not exploring enough. You're literally not doing these things. And, and, and honestly, I would have to come back to financing. We don't fund most companies to be focused on, like, I'll call it like continual change, continual new thinking. Mm. We, we double down on a model. We say it's great today. You know, how many times have I heard people say, but our margin's really good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And, Why would we mess with it? Lack of sense of permanence, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like, but for the next X years while I'm in charge, my margin's pretty good. Why would I go nuclear? Yeah. Whereas I think we need to have a little bit more of, I'll say the Elon Musk, I'll, I'll throw that in there, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and the nuclear, I was just thinking of SpaceX. But we need to have a little bit more of the, like, I think Bezos is probably like this as well, although I've never talked mm-hmm. to him personally. Um, that's never good enough. That's literally, I often say, that's like bread and, and water on the table when you go to a restaurant. That's not mm-hmm. fulfilling, right? Mm-hmm. But the problem is the street rewards that, and the street rewards that, I'll call it incremental improvement of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so as we kind of connect all this back to my magic wand, my magic wand would be ultimately reinventing like a spell that reinvented and could pierce through what's really going on in an organization so that the street valued that as right. opposed to what we're seeing in the financials. And I know that's funny coming from the CFO. <laughs> and when you say what's really going on in the organization, what do you mean? How much, um, I'll call it, how much continual planning, how out there are they? How forward mm. thinking, like if we calibrated most organizations against I'll call it 2020 consumer expectations. And we had a net present value of that, or, you know, uh, we, we have things like scoring, like um, NPS scoring and things like that. Mm-hmm. But like, if you really aggregated that and you signed a monetary stock price value to it, mm-hmm. which is right. like, what does my company actually, not what do I think, not what do analysts think about me? Talk about crowdsourcing your, right. your market value, right? Yeah. If we really went there and said, you know, I interact with Target and Starbucks and Amazon. Let me actually assign them a value, not on their net worth and their assets mm-hmm. and their investments, but what about like my consumer experience? If we actually created a 
consumer expectation and experience, you know, like how you take an IQ score and then mm-hmm. you combine that with like, what, what are like, what, how am I, how are my kids really doing in school? And it's like, what's their aptitude versus where are they? What's my aptitude? I should get a market value score on my aptitude. Like, where am I? What am I actually doing? Mm-hmm. What do my customers think? And then clearly you should have that in, I'll call it a triangulation with your actual financials, right? Mm-hmm. I think that would be a very interesting, like reinventing the, I'll call it the value system of the way the street investors and we look at ourselves. I think there's a lot of that going on, but maybe yeah. not in that like clearly defined way that everybody can see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this, this goes back to, so this is the 34th, maybe 35th episode we're having here, Lisa. And right, if I think about the every quarter, every month or so, in fact, when we do this, the conversation about organizational models and the way we used to do stuff yesterday always comes up. And I think there is there is a big movement right now. The fact that we're having this session and this conversation is coming up again and again, it's going back into the core of what the street, what investors, what shareholders, stakeholders, whoever they may be, whatever role they play, value. And I think, um, I do feel hopeful that we're having these conversations because diversity and inclusion, ESG, climate, energy, all of these issues, they're not just sort of fads. I don't believe they are fads. I do believe people fundamentally believe uh, that they're fed up of the way we've been doing stuff now. And I do think, you know, I've, I spent a lot of time with all various people from the, the Valley, from um, Silicon Valley, who have a certain attitude. It's, it's so clear. You see them, they're like, F this. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And it's it's a self-perpetuating culture. Good or bad, it's it's been an, uh, a trigger, an enabler in the, the formation of new companies. But if you look at Europe, you look at other parts of the world, that's not the culture. That's not how we're brought up. And it goes down to, I think what you're telling us today, it's down to a lot of things. I mean, it's your personality. You were born in a certain way. It's to do with the fact that you had this, these two parents who were doing two very different things. Um, it's to do with the fact that you fell upon and then you created your own sort of destiny to a large extent. And it also goes down to the fact that you probably don't want to take the shit. You're probably like, uh, uh-uh, uh, I can't tolerate boredom. I cannot tolerate mediocrity. I want to do something different. And you're super curious, right? Now, for those of us who kind of resonate with that jackpot, <laughs> what about the rest? Uh, we don't have to answer the question, but I do think it's a question mark. What about the rest? We have to help the rest too. Because many people are looking at this and saying, well, it's okay for you then, of course, because your brain works in a certain way. Um, but there are many who are have been on the linear path for so long uh, in the safety zone. And what do we, the question is, do we say, well, screw you then, tough, tough, tough cookie, mate? No, you, we've got to find a way to take them along, which is the point you were making earlier on. Yeah. Um, there's no answer to that, but there are a lot of questions for you and we have to ask them because otherwise we'll run out of time. So um good timing where do we start let's go let's go to one of bill's questions and by the way if you're listening right now please send in your questions Mm -hmm. asap so we can get them to lisa in real time so lisa here's your first question from bill he says thriving cultures are great but there's always pushback from entrenched opposition so when do you decide lisa to become this sniper and take someone out rather than just dodge bullets ah dodgeball is hard right um you know, I think that clearly probably anybody listening to this or, you know, there's there's a law of numbers in change and culture transformation, right? There's, it's a third, the law of a third, a third, a third, a third. So a third are um, always, like, there's a third that you can awaken that are going to be natural champions that are just like, finally, I've had it in my head and I just mm-hmm. haven't had the courage or haven't had 
you know, I, I just haven't had anybody to even say it to whatever. There's a third that are like on the fence. And this, these are like statistically published. This isn't my opinion on these. And then there's a third that are honestly toxic, like cancers. And you have to like, in essence, cut out the cancer. And so I think the question comes into when do you take action on that known cancer? And I mean, I would ask the question to any of you back, which is if you were told you had cancer and you were told there was a way to cut it out or radiate it out, you would do it. Right. And it's a hard decision. It's not lacking empathy. And it doesn't say that you don't take, you don't calibrate that decision against many other things. But I would say for me personally, that's where my fiduciary duty and that kind of really compelling inner drive. And, and I mean, fiduciary, like, am I acting in the best interest of all employees? Am I acting in the best interest of this organization to the, the entire like I would say society, right? Because what mm -hmm. we deliver is bigger than us as any individual corporation, like financial right. service. We are huge pillars of society. So I, I would say that hopefully your leader or leaders or yourself, whomever you are in this chain, um, are willing to look deep and, and, and you know, easy calls. It's, it's always easy to accolade the top performer or the person that's willing to do that, right? Mm -hmm. it, the, the hardest calls, the things that you really struggle with are the difficult calls, the calls that you, where you have to make, I'll call it really informed, hard decisions. And, and I'll go full circle. When I was back at PwC very early on, like in the like late 90s, so like three or four years of my career, there was this great 360 degree evaluation question that I stick with to this day. It was just a simple survey question. It said, does your leader act the same way with good results as they do bad results? Mm. Like basically, right? And so as a leader, that's always affected me. And I've always said, do I act the same way? Do I take the same level of, I'll call it ownership and, and emotional connectivity to that decision, the hard decisions versus the easy ones. And so, mm -hmm. so yeah, you do definitely at sometimes have to take hard decisions, which may involve, I'll call it cutting out the cancer as opposed to sniping, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think you just have to be very conscientious. The one thing I would say is we all enter into these things with what I call hyperbole and um, rumors and excusism. So make sure that when you're thinking through these things, um, that you're, you're someone who can connect patterns and can separate fact from fiction mm. and then understand institutional knowledge. Don't underestimate institutional knowledge, but understand how to create the inertia that you need. Hopefully that answered it. That's great. You know, it actually leads to another question around, uh, also from Bill, our entire society is clam clamoring towards safety um, and the constant fear-mongering and crisis fabrication engaged in by the Politico uh, media complex is the strongest trend in culture today. So how can you expect large corporations to go against this trend rather than descend into a culture of craven compliance? Yeah. So, I mean... I think that whether I expect that, I don't know that we've yet seen enough of it. I think that we're starting to see movement of it. And I think that the, I'll say the moment of hope, the call to action that I have is, I think that consumers outweigh the inertia of corporate, corporates and corporate agendas and even politics. Like we've seen it already, you know, in the US over this year, right? So I think that we have entered a world in hyper-consumerism, personalization, and in, in generically consumer-led competitiveness. Your, your competitor is not 
being akin to your, you know, your like mm-hmm. there's safety also in not being the outlier with your competition. I mean, I know that sounds stupid, but it's like, well, they're doing this big compliance thing and they're doing this transformation. So if I do it and it's within plus or minus, you know, depending if it's a $200 million project and they're at 225 and I'm at 200, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're in line, you know, let, mm-hmm. let's go. Nobody's going to fire me for that one. So I, I think the difference now is that the consumer, again, this revolution, the, the fourth industrial revolution it has inverted the pace and expectations. Mm-hmm. Everything else trickled down from the monolithic corporation and industry industrial, like down to the individual. This is inverse. The individuals have, mm. and also, by the way, we've created curiosity and vision. How many of you sit at home thinking, well, what could Alexa do for me today? Mm-hmm. And I bet it'll be out there, right? You have this like confidence and it's going to mm-hmm. be released by someone. So I think that the consumer and the dimensionality of corporate and corporate structure is going to have this influence because mm. they're ultimately who we, we have to deliver to, because guess what? They don't buy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's real simple. Like, you know, what's mm-hmm. the ad is we all learn, like, you know, talk with your pocketbook or whatever, walk mm-hmm. with your pocketbook. Mm-hmm. Like, right. If you don't buy, there's nothing to sell anymore. And this is where we see, like to your point, after the dwindlers and this, that, and the other, what happened is people stopped buying. And we've seen this actually over the last 20 or 30 years, if you really think mm-hmm. about it, Motorola, Nokia, like, right. We've seen this. Mm-hmm. Here's another question. This is from Naomi Kolb on Facebook. And, um, she says, I'm curious about Lisa's self-care practices. And I think this is a really good question in terms of anyone who's bringing new ideas and new thoughts, new, new challenges in a business. It can be exhausting. It's a lot of sometimes pushing the river uphill. It can feel like, so for anyone, for all of us, what are some of your best self-care practices that keep you reset fresh and all, and all those things? Yeah. So the first thing that, that that's actually a great question, right? Because a lot of people that are wired similarly or doing these sorts of initiatives, we have this, you know, fail, uh, you know, whatever, there's actually a book that a colleague of mine wrote is like, uh, breaks, uh, move fast, break shit, burn out. Right. That's actually the title of the book. It's a great book. And, um, the point there is that we all get in these burnouts. So I, I would say to Naomi, that's a great question and I appreciate it. The first thing that I had to learn is what gives me energy. And you mm-hmm. re- that's very individualized, yeah. right? What gives you energy? And then you have to be sacred about what gives you energy. So athletes are notoriously, I'd say the best at this. What replenishes them? What gives them electrolytes? Like what is their potassium? And they're really good about ensuring they get it. And I think that we... A lot of times we, you know, et cetera. So, so for me, I guess I would have to say, I know what my energy source is. Mm. I know my Gatorade and I ensure I covet that time. And that time actually is my number one priority Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, my um, energy sources, I have to plug into those energy sources and, you know, I'll just like be straight talk live after all my energy source is not necessarily rest or meditation or sleep. Those things like, like sleep. Yes. I need sleep, but meditation. I'm like, I'm like planning while I'm trying to meditate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, quarterly report done. I'm, like, calm it down and I'm, like, I'm a thinker. Right. Uh-huh. And so I had to lean into that. And so for me, I've actually found things like for me personally, Pilates, it's, I'm a dancer. Mm-hmm. 
And Pilates is so form driven that I can't be distracted while I'm doing that. So that's one form of rejuvenation. And then for me, honestly, I saturate up ideation from other people. So that's actually a form of rejuvenation for me that does not deplete me, that actually restores me. But yeah, I'd say find your own, um, hopefully you're an electric vehicle and find your own electrolyte charger and understand what that is. If you haven't yet discovered those things, take time to discover those things about yourself. That's a great new uh, strap line for all of us. What's your Gatorade? Yeah. Like exactly. Find your Gatorade. Right? Maybe they'll sponsor a straight talk live. Yeah. Find your Gatorade. <laughs> Good point. Uh, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> one last question from Greg um, on our call right now live. He's, mm-hmm. He asks, I think one of the challenge, one of the challenges of transformation is not being able to measure the success. What is your definition of success? And is there a pattern for success? Well, I mean, yes, I, I would say it depends on what you're trying to achieve, right? There's there's lots of different things with transformation and innovation. I, you know, there's, I think, like 10 published like, like quadrants of it. So I'd say it depends on what you're trying to achieve within that or all of the above. I mean, for me, um, given my lens, this is where probably the engineering lens comes out. I, I think of a lot of transformation and leaders in the space, we create capacity and successes and the organization just absorbs those. It's like a sponge. Mm-hmm. It just absorbs back into the abyss. And you're like, wait, what, where did that go? And you're like, I'm trying to show points on the board. So where did it go? So I would say that I have a, um, a loop where when I create it, I take it. And then you have to kind of like, in essence, like shark tank, you have to come back and ask for whatever you need. So I, mm-hmm. I if it's an, ROI play, it's an efficiency play, if it's a speed to market play, like I will literally say, well, then if, if I got you to market faster, then I want 4% of your sales back to my department for the next three years or 10 years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to start treating our internal mm-hmm. projects more like entrepreneurial capital. Mm-hmm. And how do we fund that capital? And then when you're creating transformation, you're actually creating capital. And so then if you want to deploy Mm. that capital, you have to come to me and ask for capital. And then I get to somewhat be in charge of you getting that capital or there's a, Mm -hmm. or there's a group. Right. But I think if it goes all to the corporate container, it just becomes, you did all this work. It goes back in the container of complacency. And Mm. then you're like, well, I put points on the board, but we didn't really propel or move Mm -hmm. the organization forward. So Mm. I believe a lot in that type of Mm. ownership and accountability. And again, I, I would say success for me is defined as, quantum leap advancing my organization with the consumer being the real disruptor or threat in a way that my competitors haven't thought of, but economically with the same tools. That's my high level definition. Ladies and gentlemen, Lisa Wardlow, mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) That was amazing. Um, Lisa, we got to conclude the show, um, but thank you so much for uh, you're an inspiration today. I could definitely, f- your energy is infectious and your great ideas that you're connecting and having us think about business in a different way and how we can stand for our department and, or the company or whatever it is that we're passionate about to change. Um, so where can people find out more about you and your work? Where should they go? Oh yeah. So I'm on LinkedIn. It's Lisa dashboard and, or, um, yeah, you can look me up on uh, my email, lisa.wardlaw at gmail.com. You can easily find me. And do you have any final last words for our audience of 2020? You know what? I would just say, I always like to leave with a call to action, right? First mm-hmm. of all, let's, let's connect, right? The, my energy is from other people that have this level of energy and, 
I would say the call to action is just understand it is possible. You know, like I, I you know, there's a quote that I, I, I put on my LinkedIn thing a long time ago. Um, you know, I dwell in the art of possibility. So my, mm. my like ending like a crappy year and mm. one in which we've become more mentally and emotionally and, and physically resilient mm. than ever dwell in the art of the possible. Don't ever mm. let someone tell you it's mm. not possible. It's just mm. the way you strategize through it. And so that's what I think. Brilliant. Brilliant. Mm. Powerful note to end on. Thank you so much. Um, love having you on the, on board. We'd love to have you back and um, all the best. Let's Thank stay in you. touch. And just to remind everyone, uh, we're going to be taking a two week break from the show. Uh, during the holidays, and we'll be kicking back up in January. We want to remind everyone we have launched our Maverick Leaders Program, and people like Lisa and other amazing guests who are bringing Maverick ideas to you in a free education platform. So just go to straighttalk.live forward slash MLP, and you can get all the information for how to get on board for our Maverick Leaders Program, uh, which is really the conversations that are going to prepare you for now and the future in all kinds of different and creative ways. So please check that out. It's free. And then lastly, uh, here's where we're going to start our 2021 on is the science of consciousness with uh, Tom Campbell, who's a very well-known physicist. He actually used to work at NASA in the military and then in other sectors. Uh, he's an author. He's a consciousness expert who proves it in real physical reality and beyond. And so this is going to be a fantastic, interesting conversation uh, next January 7th is when we'll be back together. All 2021, right. 2021, 2021, may it be an incredible year. We need it guys. We need it. All right. Thank you all. Lisa, you're amazing. Af, you're amazing too. And all of you listening. So thank you. Fantastic. Thank, thank you, Lisa. You cracking and, and we'll be in touch and would love to have you back on the show and 2021 will be a better year for everyone. May it be so. Yeah. All right. Peace. Goodbye everyone. Peace.